Well, good morning. I trust that you all had a very merry Christmas. I know our family did, and Becky and I wanted to wish you a happy New Year as well. So we're not the first, we're the second, since Edward already stole my thunder and, and did so. So let me pray real quickly, then we'll get started. Father God, I do thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. And Lord, there is so much to learn from the example of the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his ministry that even 2,000 years later, we can still learn from this man of God. I do pray for anyone here who might be despairing or, or saddened during this holiday season, Lord, that they might be uh, lifted up by the words of encouragement, that they might have their joy restored. We pray that you'll help me to preach uh, your word in a way that honors you. And we also pray that your Holy Spirit will tenderize hearts, Lord, so that they might, these brothers and sisters might learn and glean insights from your word and have their lives changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1907, Eleanor Hodgson Porter began publishing books. At first, she had a three-book series with the main character, Miss Billy, but Miss Billy didn't really sell that well, so she came up with a new heroine. A new, a new heroine, another girl, Pollyanna Whittier. And a children's classic was born. Pollyanna was published in 1913 and received immediate praise, acclaim, and, and success as the orphan Pollyanna arrives in Beldingsville to live with a harsh and dutiful maiden aunt. All soon feel her effects as she enlivens everyone with her cheerful and infectious optimism. The lonely, the sick, the sad, and the obnoxious all become enamored with this girl's enthusiasm and zeal, resulting in the transformation of all with whom she comes in contact. Consequently, Pollyanna is a cultural icon. In fact, if you look in the, in the dictionary, you find the following definition. The Pollyanna is a person characterized by irrepressible optimism and a tendency to find good in everything. Everybody should have a friend like Pollyanna. They just put you in a good mood by spending 10 minutes with them. And, and no doubt many of you have been around these types of people who smile in the face of danger and despair and wonder, where do they get that from? You long and yearn to have that kind of joy and enthusiasm, but it eludes you. For many of you, the, the holiday season is a difficult one. As the rest of the world celebrates friends and family, you're reminded of the friends and family who you lost, whether a spouse, child, brother, sister, father, mother, or dear friend, Christmas does not seem to be the same without them. Maybe you celebrate this Christmas knowing that it'll be the last with that certain someone who you hold dear, who is terminally ill or exceptionally sick. Some of you struggle with Christmas as you routinely undergo family persecution. There's strain in the air, antagonism generated by your faith in Christ, and, and this tension begins to get to you after a while, and, and you know that your witness has created an antagonism against God and against you, and what should be a festive holiday celebrating friends and family often turns into a war of words where people left, leave with hurt feelings on account of your faith in Christ. Perhaps Christmas is hard because you look forward to celebrating it with a wife or a certain someone special, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but your spouse has, has left you or 
your boyfriend or girlfriend no longer wants to be in a relationship with you. For some of you, the Christmas gifts were sparse this year as you don't have the money you once had. Perhaps you took a pay cut or, or maybe you lost your job. Some of you celebrated a, another Christmas single and, and wondered if God would ever give you a family of your own to celebrate the holiday with. Now, with all of this said, the reality of the matter is, whether it's at Christmas or at some other season in your life, you will encounter tribulation and affliction. That's just part of the curse. Sooner or later, someone close to us will die. Sooner or later, some of us will become terminally ill or undergo pain associated with, with death. Yet, for all of this, it's still possible to have superabounding joy. One looks at the life of Paul. Paul was a man deeply impacted by affliction. He has been beaten, betrayed, falsely accused, and even imprisoned. Yet for all the sorrows for which he is intimately acquainted with, his joy bubbles up like an artesian well. As many of you know, Paul wrote the book of Philippians while he, while he was under house arrest in Rome, as he waited to be tried before Caesar and to find out whether or not he would live or die. But just a cursory glance at this beloved book would lead you to the conclusion that he was not writing from a prison cell. He was writing from summer camp, from the shepherd's conference or the men's retreat. He was on a mountain high, just smiling through the pages that we see in this dear letter. Obviously, the worldly circumstances are not the basis of his joy. Rather, it is the spiritual insight which God gave him. In other words, Paul learn to accept the circumstances which he was residing in as the handiwork of God. And secondly, he rejoiced that God is glorified in the midst of them. So this morning, as a Christmas gift, I want to offer you this joy, a joy that the world and Satan cannot constrain, a joy that does not rise or fall with the stock market, a joy that is not contingent on a Lakers victory or good grades, a joy that is not dependent on your health or someone else's, a timeless, true joy, the joy of a Pollyanna. And so today, we're going to examine two tonics of joy which transformed Paul into a Pollyanna so that you might learn to truly rejoice in the midst of trials and tragedy. The two tonics are this for all you note takers. One, look for God's hand in your circumstances. And two, rejoice whenever Christ is exalted. Let me repeat that. Point one, look for God's hand in your circumstances. This is from Philippians 1, 12 through 14. And two, rejoice whenever Christ is exalted. Philippians 1, 15 through 18a. So now open up to the book of Philippians and join with me as I read Philippians 1, 12 through 18. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of my brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only, only that in every way, 
whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So the first point to acquiring this Pollyanna joy is to look for God's hand in the midst of your circumstances. The first step to acquiring joy in the midst of tragedy is to understand that God is the author of all circumstances. God is a sovereign over your present situation, and he has perfectly arranged the world for your good and his glory. And although his ways are not evident at all times, they are indeed present. Whether we feel it or see it or hear it or not, his invisible hand is orchestrating the events of your life, even right now. It's no accident that you're here sitting in a pew. It's no accident that I'm preaching, and it's no accident that I'm preaching this text. So when we look at our present situation, how do we gauge our happiness? Well, we do it by seeing the spread of the gospel as our measuring rod. And you get this from Philippians 1.12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, this begs the question, what are or what were Paul's circumstances? Well, to do that, let's go back to five years before Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians. Now, Paul was ministering in Corinth, and he wrote a letter to the Romans. And in that letter, he says this to the Romans, I will go on, I will go on by way of you to Spain. What Paul is saying in that brief clause is that he fully intends on visiting the Roman church. And he will visit them as a free man as he launches a ministry to Spain. This desire was still impressed upon him, as we see in Acts 19.21, where two years later, while ministering in Ephesus, he says this. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in his spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must see Rome. Paul purposed in his spirit to take an odd route to Rome, where he would travel to the eastern part of the empire, Jerusalem, before he went to the western part, where Rome is. And so he went to Jerusalem, and at Jerusalem he was promptly arrested, sent to prison, and then taken up north, about 100 miles to Caesarea, where he resided for two years to stand trial. While there, he had a Roman governor constantly solicit him to get a bribe so that he might be released from prison, but yet Paul did not cave into those circumstances. See, it was no accident that he was in Caesarea. He had a chance to proclaim to the governor there and to many others. But then he appealed to Caesar, and he was sent to Rome by way of a ship, which, as we find out in Acts 27, underwent a violent, perfect storm, where he eventually was shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and once again, not by accident, he was able to witness to the crew of the ship, and he was able to witness to the Maltese. I think that's what you call them. And then he was taken up to Rome, and even though he intended to go to Rome as a free man, since it was a stopping point on his way to Spain, he went to Rome as a prisoner for Christ, where he was placed under house arrest. He was in chains, he was in bondage, but he still had an opportunity to visit the Roman church as they, in fact, visited him. Now, he was under house arrest, but it was no country club 
prison, to say the least. Despite the unfettered access which Paul had, he, he faced many trials. For instance, many people within the Roman church were taking the opportunity to slander, malign, and to really persecute him and try to make his prison experience as miserable as possible. He also did not have the freedom to engage in an itinerant ministry that he was so accustomed to and so used to. Also, the threat of execution loomed as he accepted the possibility of being poured out like a drink offering. And finally, Paul would have to make his appeal to a slightly emotionally unstable emperor named Nero. And if you know anything about Nero, he was not a nice man. A few years after Paul's trial, he he was burning Christians alive at his garden party for amusement. All of this put an ominous cloud on Paul's present situation. And those were Paul's circumstances. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in that Philippian prison or under house arrest, my letter would not sound like what Paul wrote. It would sound something like this. Pray for me. I no longer experience the freedom which you all enjoy. Further, church members have turned against me, and day and night I am faced with the threat of death. Further, I sleep on a bed of straw. I am chained to a soldier with body odor. But God's grace is sufficient. <laughs> right, we, we throw that in there so that if we can complain about any circumstance that we want, but if we put God's grace is sufficient or pray for me, somehow that doesn't count as grumbling. Well, Paul does not embellish his, in his situation. He doesn't, in fact, we don't know a lot about it. Many Roman or many commentators on the, on Philippians and the other prison epistles find it very frustrating that they can't gather all this data. And you know why that is? Because Paul is so busy talking about Christ and how the situation is turning out for the greater progress of the gospel that he almost loses the hardship in his own life. He doesn't go around talking about his, his suffering and his hardship so that people might say, I can't believe you go through all that, Paul. You're so godly. He's not advertising. He's not trying to get pats on the back. What he's doing, he's magnifying the Lord and trying to make him great. And as we see in verse 12, his circumstances and the reason for his rejoicing is that it leads to the greater progress of the gospel. Now, this would be a surprise to some greater progress of the gospel to the Philippians. Now, undoubtedly, you were uh, very much, I guess, in love with, with Paul in the sense that he was your spiritual father that he was your mentor, that he was your friend, he was someone who you valued and that you wanted to see more than anything succeed. And so here he is in prison under house arrest facing the threat of death. And so what do you do? You send him a care package. You take a collection. You send it by way of Epaphroditus. You get sick on the way, by the way, to deliver it to him. And then you wait. You want to hear news. How is Paul doing? Is he doing okay? You, you hope that he's encouraged by the love gift that you gave and and then Epaphroditus shows up again. He's looking healthier than he did when he nearly died delivering the love gift. And this is what he says. He gives this letter that says, guess what, guys? I'm doing wonderful. In fact, this is the most fruitful ministry I've ever come across. God is so good. See, this would be the equivalent. Let's say, Jack, I'm going to use you as a illustration, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Good. Well, let's say we send Jack to Russia for a missions trip. 
where he taught at a seminary in Samara, which he often does, and while there, a revolution breaks out. We find out that Christians everywhere are imprisoned, many have died, and guess what? Jack is in, not a, not San Quentin, even worse, a Russian prison. Thus, with no more seminary, no more students, no more opportunities to teach, we had assumed that Jack's ministry has been thwarted, that all the money that we gave to him to go over and minister to Russia has gone to waste. Further, we're not going to get our pastor back for a long time. Now, what a surprise it would be if we got an email or, or a letter from, Paul, from Jack who told us that he is experiencing the best ministry of his life. People are getting saved, sharing with others. The word of God is being preached, and he had no idea that he was sent to Russia to minister to others in a Russian prison. You know what thought would go through your mind? I'll tell you what wouldn't. You wouldn't think about poor Jack in the Russian prison. What you would be thinking about is what a great God we serve. Nothing, not even the evil forces that back that revolution can stop his word from being proclaimed. In the same way, Paul does not focus on his plight because he does not want the Philippians to focus on his suffering. He focuses on God so that other people, the Philippians namely, might focus on the Lord. Now here's a question for you. In the midst of trials, do people know more about your trials or more about what God is doing in the midst of his trials? Do you get, find yourself giving in to, to pious complaining with the pray for me, then the litany of complaints, and then but God is good? Or do you just talk about all the unique and fun ways that God is providing for you, that God is sustaining you, the lessons that you've been able to learn, the people you've been able to witness to on account of this unique situation? The last thing you need to do is to complain, because really, what does complaining do? Does God listen to our complaints and say, you know what? I'm sorry for that circumstance. I'll go ahead and change it. He doesn't work that way. The only effect that complaining has is to make you miserable, and it causes you to not accept and embrace the sovereign circumstances of God. So moving on, we see that Paul saw his circumstances, and for that matter, you should see your circumstances as an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel among the unsaved. And we see this in 13. He says this, so that in my imprisonment, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. See, in this verse, Paul sheds light onto how the non-Christians were impacted by his imprisonment. Now look at the text, verse 13. We see the term, if you have the NASB, imprisonment in the cause of Christ. Now, if you look at your Bible closely, you'll notice that the cause of is in italics, which means that interpreters added these words. I believe that the NIV says it more succinctly when, when it writes, I am in chains for Christ. In other words, Paul is not in prison because of a religion. He's not in prison because of a cause. He is in prison because of Christ himself. Paul saw his sufferings as infinitely acquainted with the sufferings of Christ. We see this relationship in Philippians 3.10, where it says, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and here's the key point, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. See, Paul sees suffering as a part of discipleship. It is a means by which he might model Christ. Christ was a servant who suffered willingly to be obedient to his father. In the same way, 
Paul suffered out of obedience to Christ. Bear in mind that Paul was held on the charges of sacrilege and for stirring up political agitation for preaching Christ. Thus, it's conceivable that he could have extradited himself from prison by renouncing his faith. His loyalty to Christ was a sole offense, yet Paul did not mind. He loved being an object lesson, someone who was able to suffer unlike any other prisoner under the Praetorian Guard's watch. Every four hours, a different soldier would be chained to him, and they would see how he was reacting to his present circumstances. One commentator imagines how Paul advertised Christ to this Praetorian Guard. He says this, They took note of his patience, gentleness, courage, and unswerving loyalty to inner conviction. They were deeply impressed. Yes, even these hardened soldiers, these rude legionaries, who presumably would be the very last to be affected in any way by the gospel, were deeply moved by what they saw and heard and felt in the presence of Paul. They listened to him as he talked to friends who came to visit him, or to his secretary to whom he dictated his letters, or to his judges, or to God in prayer, or even to themselves. It is not difficult to imagine that at first they listened with a measure of disdain or hardly listened at all. But after a while, they became interested and then enthusiastic, and what they learned began to spread. See, Paul's conduct no doubt made him an extraordinary prisoner, so extraordinary, in fact, that his imprisonment in the cause of Christ became well known throughout the entire Praetorian Guard. The secret service of the emperor This man is in prison for a purpose, and undoubtedly many converted, and many more heard the gospel message, and Christ was heralded in one of the darkest places in the empire at that time. Now, there is a principle here. Often God uses sufferings of saints as a megaphone for the gospel. Henry G. Bosch tells a story of Adoniram Judson, the renowned missionary to Burma, who lived there for seven heartbreaking years suffering from hunger and privation before he was thrown into the Abba prison for a total of 17 months. While at prison, before the Geneva Convention, mind you, and before any, any of the humanitarian uh, reforms that we have, for 17 months he was subjected to almost incredible mistreatment. As a result, for the rest of his life, he carried the ugly marks made by chains and iron shackles which cruelly bound him. Undaunted upon his release, he asked for permission to enter another province where he might, pre might resume preaching the gospel of God. The godless ruler indignantly, indignantly denied his request, saying, My people are not fools enough to listen to anything a missionary might say, but I fear that they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your religion. When Christians suffer with dignity, it demonstrates that our God is worth suffering with. No doubt a joyful person who is dying of cancer will have an incredible platform to share the gospel. Now one does not have to 
suffer in an extreme way to speak for the gospel. For instance, imagine what would happen if, if Paul was doing some holiday travel at this point in time. He would probably be the, the type of guy who would offer a window seat to a child or perhaps an aisle seat to an elderly lady. He would not, you would not hear a single gripe from him about delays or the hassles of airline travel. He would be kind, courteous, forbearing when the stewardess tells them, tells him that he ran out of di- that they ran out of Diet Coke. He wouldn't go haywire and have a conniption fit. He'd probably politely read his Bible, study the scriptures, and talk about things of the Lord. See, his conduct would be very different from how the world would normally normally uh, bear in those. Uh, in, his conduct would be different than how the world would normally react under those same circumstances. And that gives him a platform to share the gospel. And undoubtedly, he would turn to the person sitting next to him and offer him the message of hope and pre- preach and proclaim the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, what about you? When you, go under, when you undergo affliction and tribulation, even the common cold, do you react differently now than you did when you were not a Christian? Do you act differently now than perhaps the non-Christians who are around you? Do they get a sense of the hope that you have and your ability to rejoice in the supernatural circumstance, to rejoice in the circumstances that are supernaturally arranged by God? Or do you damage your testimony by giving in to joyless complaining? Do you lose sight of the fact that God might use this as an opportunity to spread his word and to share the gospel? So going on to the next point, verse 14, Paul not only had a ministry to those within the prison, he had a ministry to those outside the prison. In verse 14, we see, And most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. The gospel was spread on two fronts, one to the Praetorian Guard, and two, by encouraging those people who visited him to be more fearless and courageous in their own personal gospel ministry. Surely many who would visit him would return with greater confidence. Perhaps the reason why they were fearful of sharing the gospel was because they were afraid of suffering. They're afraid that they might be thrown into prison like Paul, but when they visit Paul, he seems like the happiest man on earth. So if they throw me into prison, I can be happy like Paul and I'll be even happier. So you see the impact that, they, that it had. Paul's joy and his enthusiasm and his zeal caused them to want to emulate that. They want to be, be bold in their proclamation. They want to be fearless. Perhaps they knew that Paul could not do certain ministry that he was used to, and so they wanted to fill in the gap and do what he would do if he were out of prison. Whatever the case, Paul's response to the persecution which he endured empowered them and encouraged them to share the gospel. How often a whiff of persecution can put some backbone in otherwise timid Christians. In 1956, five young men, American missionaries, Jim Elliott, Peter Fleming, Ed McCulley, Nate Saint, and Roger Yadurian lost their lives along the Kiraway River in Ecuador when they were speared by Alta Indians. Now, this would have been considered a tragedy, a, a waste of fine young Christian talent. Yet they had some unexpected and unforeseen fruit as many people from Wheaton College from which they hailed over the next two decades 
gave their lives to foreign missions. On account of the Alka Five, they were encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and without fear. So whether it's inside or outside of prison, Paul clearly sees correctly and correctly places all events in God's plan. In other words, Paul believed the words that he wrote five years earlier in Romans 8.28 where he says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And this is not without precedence. God uses many evil circumstances and situations to accomplish his good. Joseph, when he was cast into a pit and left for dead, magnifies God's providence in Genesis 50.20 with this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Jeremiah, cast into a muddy cistern and suffering other afflictions, coins a famous phrase immortalized in scripture and song, great is thy faithfulness. Our Lord Jesus Christ, crucified by means of the very cross that he carried, gains victory over sin and death and Satan, causing every true believer to exclaim with Paul, as he so eloquently puts in Galatians 6.14, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 8, we see the church's response to the murderer of Stephen, where he's taken out by an angry mob and stoned to death. They went about through all Judea and the rest of Israel and the empire because of the persecution to preach the gospel. God can use funerals to preach the gospel. He can use suffering to mold your character and make you a brighter light for him. He can use a state of singleness or a a renewed state of singleness to accomplish more ministry. All this for his glory and our joy. And so do you really believe this? When you look at your circumstances, do you see it rich with opportunity? Or do you become discouraged? Do you feel like God has somehow turned against you and turned his back on you? Or or do you see these new situations and elements in your life as an opportunity to redirect your ministry? Do you have that kind of Pollyanna joy which learns to submit to the sovereign circumstances of God and accept that there's God's will for your life and in turn seeks to use these circumstances to magnify God who made them. And that brings us to our next point. To have that Pollyanna joy, you need to rejoice whenever Christ is exalted. And we get this from 115 through 18a. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. This passage, we see a tale of two preachers, men who preach Christ from mixed motivations. Some, as mentioned earlier, were encouraged by Paul and began to preach from Christ from goodwill and in love. They know Paul's heart for the gospel and the ministries which he seeks to prosper and grow. And as we saw in verse 14, they were encouraged by his suffering and went forth from their visits with him to proclaim Christ and to encourage Paul by doing so. Don't worry, Paul. You can be in prison. We'll take over from here. What a blessing that must have been. 
Yet other, others preach Christ out of envy and strife with contentiousness and a desire to cause Paul great distress. These are the same people who preach Christ out of selfish ambition in verse 17, a word that represents a motive of self-interest or mercenary interest. The desire to use Paul's circumstances against him. These are individuals who want to flaunt their freedom and perhaps insinuating that their ministry is superior to Paul's because he is in prison and they are not. Now, inevitably, when you study this passage, one wonders, who are these adversaries? You look at the term envy and strife and the two other instances in which it's used, it speaks of heretical unbelievers. Now, this has caused many people to suggest that these are members of the Judaizer factor, faction. What these people did was they were Jewish converts, and I say that in parentheses because they believed in the false gospel, who believed that some Old Testament prescriptions still had to be obeyed to be saved. If you want to be saved, you need to be, come to Christ and become a Jew. You must be circumcised to be saved. You must be kosher to be saved. You must obey Jewish law to be saved. Now, being that this was a false gospel and that Paul, in other places of Scripture, tears them apart, it's very unlikely that these are the people he has in mind in this passage because he rejoices at the gospel that they preached. It's very unlikely that Paul, who seeks to be a pillar for truth, would celebrate and rejoice in such error. But there's another possibility. Although no one can know for certain, many people suggest that it might have been a Jewish faction within the Roman church. Now, five years earlier, before writing Philippians, Paul wrote a letter to the Romans. Now, at that time, tension mounted between the two parties of the church. You had the Gentile faction, and you had the Jewish faction. Now, the Jews didn't like the way the Gentiles were living out their Christianity. The Gentiles felt freedom to depart from certain tenets of the Jewish law. They didn't see circumcision as really necessary, eating pork as really a crime. They would go to certain feasts that they would stay away from. And the Jews had a trouble with them and began to try to impose some of their regulations upon the Gentiles. Now, bear in mind, this was not heresy, so to speak, in that they still held to Christ being the Messiah, to being saved by grace, but they brought in some baggage from their old religion. This would be similar to uh, a fundamentalist Christian coming in here and scolding anyone who took a drink of alcohol or listened to rock music, even if it's Christian rock music. He could still be saved and believe all that stuff, but there's some baggage that is associated with a legalistic background. And so these people did not necessarily like the tone of Paul's letter to the Romans, where he seemed to take the side of the Gentiles. They didn't like the fact that an apostle who'd never set foot in Rome yet was telling their church what to do. And they didn't like the fact that he was biased. After all, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so they saw this as an opportunity to regain their preeminence in Rome and suggest, listen, Romans, listen to us, the unimprisoned teachers. If God wanted to honor Paul's message, he would obviously be out of prison. That is a mindset which they had. They preached the gospel, they preached the true word of God, but they did so with selfish, self-aggrandizing motivation. Now, to give you a modern equivalent, let's suppose that a 
group of prominent Christians from Calvary Bible Church decided that they did not like the direction of our church. So they up, they leave, they go on a phone call campaign. They're able to take away half of the church here and start another church five miles away, just across town. Over a period of time, they employ many uh, philosophy of ministry distinctives, which we do not agree with. They do teach some points of doctrine, which are definitely error, but not necessarily contrary to the gospel. But they still have a pure gospel message in its most basic form, even though the motivation is off. And that church grows to twice the size of Calvary Bible Church, three times the size. In fact, it becomes a dominant church in Burbank. Now, what are we to do at Calvary? Well, we could respond in kind and try to steal their sheep. We could sulk and become bitter. We can give in and be jealous at their success. Or we can rejoice that God is making his name great and that the gospel is being preached. Now, I want to be very careful here. Paul is not saying that motivation does not matter in sharing the gospel. If you look at 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul says this, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will, bring both, who, will, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So when you stand in front of judgment and you present your works of ministry, if your motives are bad, they don't really count. So Paul is not saying that you should not care about motives. Obviously, he cared about motives. Paul preached about motives all the time in ministry. But what he is saying is when you don't have control of the circumstances, rejoice in anything that brings glory and honor to the Lord. That's what we see in verse 18 where Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. It doesn't matter the motivation of these preachers so long as they are preaching the gospel. And I can rejoice in that. Now, keep in mind, he is also saying, I can rejoice when they preach Christ and preach the truth. Paul would not preach, Paul would not rejoice if Mormons were preaching the Mormon gospel or liberal theologians were preaching a liberal gospel or Jehovah Witnesses were, were preaching the Jehovah Witnesses version of the gospel because those are false gospels. But where the gospel is truly preached, he can rejoice in that. Paul has a largeness of heart that where he focuses on the central issue of the gospel and is able to rejoice even in imperfect ministries. Now, I have a, a silly little habit when I get in front of the TV where I watch TBN. Now, in between seeing Tammy Faye Baker forming a Congo line, Paul and Jan Crouch pleading for money with crocodile tears and R.W. Schombach working himself up into a preaching frenzy and then completely forgetting what he just said because apparently when you're under, under the anointing of the Spirit, you have no idea what you're saying. kind of shows. But Paul, but every once in a while, I see a wonderful gospel presentation. I've gone to churches where they have some unbiblical philosophies of ministry. They have interpretive dance during the worship service and and sometimes they're not very good and you have to hold yourself back from laughing. You also see women preaching among other things that would cause us to cringe at Calvary Bible Church. 
but they're still preaching the gospel. And if I was given a platform, I would plead with them to reconsider their philosophy of ministry. If they ask, I would talk to them about trying to base their ministry on the sufficiency of the word of God. In the meantime, all I can do is pray for them and rejoice that the word of God is being proclaimed. See, Paul can rejoice as long as the correct content of the gospel message is proclaimed no matter who or how they proclaim it. The Donatist controversy in the 4th and 5th century church is also very instructive on this point. In the terrible persecutions under the Roman emperor Diocletian, the emperor's soldiers invaded many churches and demanded that the priests hand over all copies of Scripture. Many of the priests refused and thereby lost their lives. But there's another group of priests who would go ahead and hand over the scriptures and they would watch the scriptures burn in front of them, yet their life would be spared. When the persecution subsided, many people looked at these priests who allowed scriptures to burn as traitors and defrocked them. Now, this is where the controversy came in. There were many people, many priests, who were ordained by these traitor priests. And what the Donatists taught was if you were ordained by a traitor priest, your ordination does not count. They believe that if you're ordained by a traitor, that somehow that work of ordination is invalid. But most of the populace disagreed. They believe that God himself made those sacraments of ordination, not the priest who officiated over them, and that no human unfaithfulness could thwart God's design for the good. So when we look at Philippians 1.18, Paul agrees. The majority were right. God can use unscrupulous televangelists, money-grubbing radio preachers, and sophisticated but unbelieving clergy to communicate with his truth. So if you became a Christian by listening to the gospel message of Benny Hinn, well, praise the Lord. You don't have to recant and listen to somebody who's a little bit more biblical solid to have your salvation count. God can use any and all circumstances to proclaim his word so long as it is preached. And this proclamation of Christ was Paul's great joy. Many were slandering him. Many of those things genuinely hurt. But in the midst of it, he still delighted that God was using these less than perfect men to magnify his name. Truly, when you see your circumstances through God's lenses and make it your ambition to make him exalted, you can't help but have that kind of Pollyanna joy that sees a silver lining behind every cloud and not to sound cliche, that turns all lemons that life gives you into lemonade. Now, if you struggle with this, there are two reasons why. One, you do not see things through God's providence. And two, you have some other purpose to your life than making God great. Now, if you have trouble seeing life through God's providence, I can't correct you in, in a minute, but what I can do is give you some recommendations. Listen to Jack's series on the sovereignty of God. Perhaps pick up Wayne Gruden's systematic theology and read the chapters on sovereignty and the providence of God. And finally, Jerry Bridges has written a very fine book called Trusting God, where he talks about the sovereignty of God laid out. God is sovereign. We have trouble seeing it. And I encourage you to follow up on that topic if you have trouble understanding it. But for, other, for the others of you, you have some other purpose in your life than making God great, and you may not realize it at the time. For instance, 
If you are in despair because you lost your job and the money's short, but when you find out somebody's hiring, all of a sudden the joy has returned. Or perhaps you have just gone through a breakup and you don't know what to do, but then some other member of the opposite sex shows interest and your joy returns. So what you're doing in that situation is you are trusting a change in circumstance to make you happy and not how God will use those circumstances. What would happen to you if you broke up with that person and you stayed single for the rest of your life? Could you be just as happy as if you found somebody else? What would happen if you got sick and you never got better? Could you be just as happy if you got sick and then got better? Can you rejoice with Habakkuk where he says in Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, I will exult in the Lord and will rejoice in the God of my salvation. If your hope is in the stock market, owning a home someday, having a well having well-behaved kids growing your ministry getting a promotion having a happy marriage you are standing on shaky ground and inevitably you will be disappointed but if your hope is in God and making his name great he will not be disappointed every shift and change in circumstance will be a new opportunity a chance to minister to new people to develop new characters so that you can be more godly and a better advertisement for Christ but there might be another group of you who think about exalting God as a purpose of our suffering. And to be quite honest, you might be a little disgusted by that. After all, why does God have to let my loved one die to make his name great? Why can't he find some other way to be magnified? Why does he have to make us suffer to spread the gospel? Is that really necessary? Now, those are all legitimate questions, but remember this. God loved his son more than you could ever love anyone, and his heart was broken, and he ached as he watched him be beaten, betrayed, and crucified on that destined Friday. But why did he let him go through all this suffering? It's for you. It's so that he can make his name great by redeeming a people for himself. He suffered so that you would not have to suffer in hell forever. So sometimes God calls upon Christians to return the favor. He calls you to, to suffer, to be a light in the midst of your suffering like Paul was, to make his name great so that people might be reached in a, in a special way and give their lives to Christ. And by your suffering, by your affliction, God uses that as a means to relieve their own suffering where they will no longer endure the consequences of sin and be liberated and become born again. Christ was afflicted so that you wouldn't be, and, and he calls you often to be afflicted so that others won't be as well. So the joy that Paul offers you, it can be yours. If you look for God's hand in your circumstances and rejoice whenever Christ is exalted. Now, by way of application, I wanted to give three points. One is you need to realize that God is the author of all circumstances and to realize that your complaining will not change them. In fact, the only thing that a complaining will accomplish is make you more miserable. 
And when you do complain, realize who you're complaining to. You're not complaining to your mom. You're not venting to your husband. You're complaining to the Almighty and saying, I don't like the way you've done things. If that's your perspective, there's no chance of getting the joy which he offers to those who obediently walk in his name. Number two, imagine how God can use your present circumstances for the exaltation of Christ. Think about the possibilities. For instance, if your girlfriend or boyfriend just broke up with you, you now have more time to serve. Further, you can comfort others who have had their hearts broken and thereby applying 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort all those who are in any affliction with the comfort with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. No matter your situation, a, a cold, a strained relationship, perhaps a fight, perhaps sick children, imagine how can God use this circumstance orchestrated by him for his glory? What lesson is he trying to teach me? What new people is he trying to bring into my life so that I can minister to them? And thirdly, do not withdraw from ministry because you will shrivel if you do. Now, I'm not saying don't withdraw from church ministry, but don't withdraw from the priority of evangelizing the lost and encouraging the saints. Seize these new circumstances as divine redirection, for God is placing you on another course to talk to different people. For instance, if you become hospitalized, you cannot have a, a church ministry, so to speak, but you can minister to the other patients, to the hospital staff, and to those people who come to encourage you. Make it your goal to encourage those who come to see you to encourage you. When you do that, you understand the purpose. I'm not suffering for no reason that God has a plan and God is good and pray that God will give you the insight so that you might see the good that happens. And you may not see it until heaven, but how wonderful it will be to see how God used all the circumstances in your relatively and our relatively insignificant life to accomplish great things for his kingdom. The circumstances may change, but be excited and anticipate how God will use each hard day at work, how God is gonna use your common cold, how God is gonna use your stubborn child, how God is gonna use your financial hardship or the familial strain on your family. How is God gonna use each of those circumstances to make his name great? And when you do that, you will experience the, the Pollyanna joy that will bless others, bless God, and bless yourselves. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And I do pray for anyone here who is having trouble finding that joy, whose heart might be aching, whose soul might be dry, whose spiritual walk is not what it used to be. Lord, might you encourage them to be an encouragement to other people, to give themselves freely, to to see all their circumstances as your handiwork and to rejoice and to imagine how God is gonna make his name great. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you who'd like to talk to someone, we have some counsel.